0: This week we are back into the book of Revelation in a series that we've called the 11th hour as we study the, the end of what's going to happen in human history and, and it's been a couple weeks, right? It's been a couple weeks since we've been in the book of Revelation with the, uh, the emphasis on prayer and then the youth service last week so I'd like to take just a few moments and kind of review where we are in the book of Revelation and, uh, and where we're headed from here. So if you remember back in chapter 13, we're, we'll be in chapter 14 today, but if you remember back in chapter 13, Satan had been setting up his own counterfeit trinity, right? He's been setting things up, and it goes all the way back to, uh, to Isaiah 14 when, when Satan said, I want to be like the most high, and, he, and so he's creating his own world domination plan and wants everyone to worship him in one way or another. And, and, and in chapter 13, it's good news for him. Things are working according to his plan. And uh, in fact, uh, those who do not accept the mark of the beast in chapter 13 were are to be killed and annihilated. And so, uh, so for those who do receive the mark of the beast, those who do follow Satan and his religion, things are going great in chapter 13. So then in chapter 14, what we find is is, um, is, or let me uh, back up one step first. And there, that was also bad news, by the way, for anyone who refuses the mark of the beast. In chapter 13, if you refuse the mark of the beast, you would be put to death. So things aren't looking good here in chapter 13. And that's why in chapter 14, what we find is that that John takes us all the way to the future and he gives us a glimpse of the end. So he gives us a glimpse of the end because right in that low, that low, the, the valley and the shadow of death, we could call it, of, of chapter 13, he's saying, well, wait, before we go any further I want to remind you of something that we're going to see at the very end. So, so chronologically we look at it this way. We have chapter 13 and then in chapter 14 he takes us all the way to the end and says, hey, I want you to see what's going to happen at the end. And then, starting back in chapter 15, we'll pick up and actually work towards that end. And that's where we are right now. We're in chapter 14 and John gives this this quick glimpse of the end through the visits of six angels. And a few weeks ago, when, when we were last in the book of Revelation, a few weeks back, we went through the first three of those six. Well if you think of it, uh, think of it almost like a, a pyramid of sorts, and uh, as we see some parallel natures to these, we have the first three angels. Just a quick review from the last time. The first angel gave the, the message of the eternal gospel, explaining that everyone who... Uh, who was about to be punished was, was deserving of it because everyone had had access to the gospel. The second angel gave, brought the message that Babylon has fallen, and we talked about uh, uh, how that Babylon was a was a metaphor for the world gov- the world government at the time, and 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 he said that all of these nations that have been persecuting the believers would eventually fall. And then the a- angel, the third angel, gave the message that all of those who actually did carry the mark, of the, the mark of the beast, the 666, would endure the wrath of God. And that's where we left off at this point. But before we get to the next three angels, John introduces us to an important character who becomes the pinnacle of all of this, uh, and he's a very important character. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 14 and read verse 14. When then I looked... then i looked and behold a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the son of man having his head having on his head a golden crown and on his hand a sharp sickle so it's interesting who is he introducing now the son of man now john has used the word son of man multiple times in the book of revelation and also in the book of john and every time what's his reference who he is referring to jesus christ and so Now, all of a sudden, we're introduced to Jesus Christ before we're introduced to angels 4, 5, and 6 in this glimpse of the end. And so here we are introduced to Jesus Christ, and I think that that's going to be key to understanding this passage. Then we move on to angel number 4, and I'm going to run through these quickly, and then we'll go back over them. Look at angel number 4 in verses 15 and 16. It says, And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. This then is followed by angel number 5, in verse 17 we read, Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also having a sharp sickle. So that's angel number six, if we're following along in the chapter. Then angel, the, or, I'm sorry, that was angel five. Angel six comes in verse 18 through 20. So then another angel came out, of, out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside of the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Now how many of you have, your, your heads are spinning a little bit after reading that. Anyone? For me, when I was reading this the first time, and I had to stop and, and come back and take a look at it But when you take this together and you think this through You've got these, the, these six angels Carrying this, this message And the Son of Man was introduced at the pinnacle of this it's, It becomes a little bit clearer When you take them together The first three, angels 1, 2, and 3 Their focus is basically saying This is what's going to happen and this is why it's going to happen And they keep predicting The wrath of God is going to come It's all future, right? Once you get to angels 4, 5, and 6 It's happening I mean, this is, they're not announcing it anymore. They're actually doing it, right? They're, you see the sickles are actually being thrust into the earth and reaping. So, so in this glimpse of the end, uh, John is making us aware of certain things before we go back to where we left off chronologically and actually uh, and go back to that last trumpet. Remember, we were at the last trumpet when we left off. He's, he's making us aware of things, first of all, that, that the things are going to look pretty bad. Things are going to look like they are under Satan's control. They're going to look that way before Jesus does what he's going to do. Things are going to look bad, and it's going to look like Satan has total control, like they're winning. It's going to look that way, and he's predicting that. But he does say that in reality, God is going to purge the earth if it's sin, and he's going to purify the earth. Now, the way we're going to look at this then is that since today we're focusing on the last three angels all of these have in common that they're talking about the wrath of God being poured out in its finality right? the wrath of God being poured out in its finality on the earth and there are three different analogies of God's wrath that we're going to look at and uh, based on each of those so let's walk through those a little bit slower and see if maybe our heads won't be spinning so much by the end maybe, uh, maybe we'll be able to grasp it a little bit better let's look again at verse 15 This is the fourth angel. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. The first analogy of God's wrath that we see here is it comes from that statement, the harvest of the earth is ripe. I'm gonna just call it for sake of a better term, I'm gonna call it the analogy of the harvest the analogy of the harvest. When, when, specifically, the emphasis in this seems to be on the timing, right? For the idea behind it is that the earth isn't ripe yet, and so when, it, when the earth is ripe at that moment, then it'll be ready for the harvest. The idea behind this is that God is waiting until the time is right to harvest the earth. Think about that for a moment. God is waiting for the time to be right to harvest the earth, you know, sometimes I think as human beings, especially as Christians, sometimes we hate to see injustice in the world. Don't you? I hate to see it. I, I have a very strong sense of justice. And I hate to see people get away with, with, with something wrong. It's just kind of in my nature. But, and so there, there's that natural tendency on my part to say, all right, God, why, don't you, why, why did you let this happen? Why did you let this person get away with it? Why, why, why? And, and what I have to stop and realize is that sometimes God's just waiting for the right moment. And his timing, by the way, is always better than mine. Uh, but it's better than any of yours as well. Right? God's timing is always perfect. And so, so we, we have to recognize that there are things he sees that we don't see. There are things he understands that we don't understand. There are things he, he understands that we can't understand. And his timing is always perfect. And so sometimes our agenda doesn't seem to match up with the same velocity or speed as God's agenda. And, and we have to realize that We're the ones that need to bend with that Does that make sense? And we look at that and We recognize this idea. God is waiting Until the time is right But that's what he's saying At that point the harvest of the earth is right Why are things so bad in chapter 13? Well because Satan's Looking like he's winning But God has this glorious victory in mind And he's waiting for just the perfect moment To, to do it Key word I would use for this, I think, if I if kind of sum up this one, this one concept, I would use the one keyword: patience. Patience. You think uh, God is patient, and so He is patiently waiting for the perfect time. And in that sense of God's wrath being poured out on the earth, He's saying the earth isn't ripe yet, but there's a, there's going to come a day when it is ripe. And I look at the earth and I think I think it seems kind of ripe today, don't you? Like, all right, Lord, it's, I mean, we're pretty bad. God's saying, no, it's not as bad as it's going to get yet. And, uh, and he's willing to wait. He's willing to be patient. So when I think of some applications for this in my mind, I, I think when the world is in a mess, when the world is, and it just seems like people, bad people are getting away with everything, I, I just need to focus and remember that God is still keeping track of everything. And he's waiting for the right and perfect moment to pour out. His wrath. Uh, can I give you an example, just from a personal example, how this helped me as I studied this this week? Right. How many of you are, f- are familiar with the name Jeffrey Epstein? Okay. All right. Now, before, I, I want to tell you up front, I'm not going to get into any politics. <laughs> right? So, I'm not going to go into any politics, I'm not going to get into conspiracy theories or anything. I, I, that, that's not, I'm not going to go there. But what we do know about Jeffrey Epstein is that he had a business that was bad. Would we all agree with that? Regardless of which side of any political aisle you're His business was bad. He was in the business of, of creating and running a sex slave trade for mainly for rich or famous pedophiles, right? And uh, upwards to 80 women at a time, or 80 girls at a time, ranging from age 13 up uh, and not too far up because he, he was focusing on Young girls and selling them out to men for horrible, disgusting things. And some time back, he was caught. You think he'd go to jail for the rest of his life, right? Somehow it doesn't happen. Somehow he gets jail time, but he only has to show up to jail at nighttime, right? He only has he, 12 hours a day, he's allowed free to go continue his business. Something ain't right. Right? Regardless of which side, you know. And, I, and, and, then, and then right now, what kills me, I'll be honest, it was what kills me is saying that when he was found dead in his jail cell, regardless of how that happened, there's a lot of theories. I'm not going to get into that either. But what I do know is he's dead. Would we all agree with that? What that also means is that all these people that he knew of that were co-conspirators are likely to walk. You know what that did to me with my strong sense of justice this week? it actually created a little bit of bitterness. Just being honest. It created some bitterness. Like, How can someone who can do all of this to these young girls get away with it? And then I study Revelation chapter 14. And I'm reminded, he didn't get away with anything. In fact, right now, he's just beginning to understand what his eternity is going to look like. Right? Right with every co-conspirator. I hope that our government catches them. I hope that, that, that our government can do their job. and I, I would love to have faith in, in, in my government to, in the, the restored so that they could do their job and actually bring them to justice. But you know what? I don't have to have that. Right. I don't have to have that because I know that in the end we have a God who's going to judge everybody for everything. And that actually brings some comfort to me it brings some level of understanding and it it, it, it helps me to root out bitterness. Because I'll tell you what, bitterness is never a good idea. Right? Bitterness is never a good idea. And so for me, even this week, I found that as an application for me to say, you know what? Uh, No one's getting away with anything. God is waiting until the earth is ripe for harvest. But he will harvest it gonna happen. Verse 17, the fifth angel. We read this. Then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. This is a very short verse doesn't say a whole lot about the angel, right? It doesn't give us a lot of detail. In fact it's it's really similar to the idea of of the harvest. The difference is in the with the fourth angel the emphasis seems to be on the timing. It talks about when the earth is ripe and, and the time has come, it says here the emphasis just seems to be on the idea of the sickle the sharpness of the sickle so i'm going to call this the analogy of of reaping what is a sickle used for it's used to cut down right the idea it's 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 a sickle it's sharp you cut down like wheat or something like that You, you you cut it down and you harvest it you you reap the the harvest that way um the idea, I think, in this context, and the sharpness of, of it in context, is that God is going to come from His temple to cut uh, to cut down the forces of evil in this world. He's going to cut them down. The key word is, in this case, I would use the word purge. This idea of He's going to purge. He's going to cut down the evil forces in this world. That's a scary thought when you think about it. But look at the sixth angel. Verse 18 through 20. And another angel came out of the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. You kind of see all of those ideas built into that verse. Verse 19. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the wine press up to the horse's bridles, for one thousand six hundred furlongs. This third one, here, I, I would call this the analogy of the wine press. The analogy of the wine press. In the days that this was written, there were typically two different kinds of wine presses. So I just want to kind of show you what a wine press looks like. Um, this this is an example of one, and basically you have a large a large hole there and you've got a smaller hole in the middle, and the idea is you would put a large stone inside there that's kind of like a cylinder, but one side, the circumference is smaller than the other side, so when you push it forward, it would roll into a perfect circle. Does that make sense? So you could put a stick inside that, and you could get an animal or strong people to walk around that, and that heavy stone would roll over the grapes that you'd put inside there, and then it would smash them, and they would just, you, can, you get that picture of this heavy stone smashing these grapes, and then just exploding, and then where does the juice go? It would go down into that hole that is kept in, in the middle. Um, the second type of wine press, the grosser type of wine press, in my opinion, is it looks more like this, right? Where people would actually, they would have some kind of bars that they can, they can kind of hold on to, and uh, they would uh, oftentimes, and then they would just put the, uh, the grapes into the wine press and then you would walk around on them and you would you would stomp on them, right? And you would stomp on the, the grapes and there they would usually have a trough that would come out, some kind of trough that would leave, um, you can't see it in the picture here, but a trough that would leave that and from there they would collect the wine from there. What, w- when you look at both of these concepts of wine presses, the one thing that they have in common is the I- idea of being squashed, right? Just squ- washed down and you can picture like these grapes just bursting right and the insides of the grapes just bursting out and uh and that's the analogy of god's wrath at the uh, we've entered the pg 13 zone a little bit today right but that's all right because this is this is an important thing to understand we see that this idea of this crushing followed by a flow of of grape juice in this. A couple things I find interesting too if you look back at verse 20 it says the winepress was trampled outside the city so so this is going to happen somewhere close to Jerusalem it says and the blood came out of the winepress so he slips out of the analogy explaining that there is going to be blood poured out and that that this wrath of God it's that people are going to die in this process and it says that it will happen up to the horse's bridles for a thousand six hundred furlongs now, we usually don't use furlongs in our measurement, but it comes out to about 200 miles. Imagine that. By the way, this is just a glimpse of the end. When we actually get to the, 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 the story from the book of Revelation, and we get there, we'll find out what this battle is called. Uh, anyone have a clue what it's called? The Battle of? Great. Right. And so we'll get there, and, we'll, and we'll, see, we'll see that in more detail then. But for now... Uh, this is the prediction. This is the, the glimpse of that of that moment. The idea beto- behind the wine press is that the wrath of God will be violent, but it is necessary to produce something good. That's what happens with the wine press: is that there's this crushing of the grapes, but that is necessary to produce something good. And I think that's what we're getting at in this text here as well. See, in order to make the wine, you have to smash some grapes, right? In order to purify the world, you're going to have to purge the evil from the world. And that's what we find taking place in the end. If I had one key word for this as well, I would use the word purify. The idea is that God will pour out his wrath against the forces of evil, but this is a necessary in order to purify the earth. See, what we're getting to, and I don't want to go there too far yet, but what we're getting to is a point where, where there's a new heaven and a new earth, right? new creation, but this time without the problem of sin. And, uh, and so we're, we're moving towards that. I think in context here, when we look at this though, John is giving us this glimpse of the end before he goes into detail about the seventh trumpet. Because remember, that's where we left off uh, before. We've uh, gone through um, the six seals and, the, and six of the or the seven seals and the the, the sixth trumpet. I, I, when I ask myself, why is this so important? Why is it important for us to understand that, that the Son of Man is going to come and He's going to purge and purify the earth that has been corrupted by sin? Why is this so important? I think it's important because what we're about to find out is that there's a little change, not a change of plans from God's perspective, but it'll seem like a change of plans from man's perspective because when you look at this, what's going to happen, something's going something's to change. And it goes back to what's been happening over the whole scope of the book of Revelation. Remember the, 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 the seven seals that we talked about at the beginning? Seven seals of God wrath. The idea was that there's this one big scroll and every seal that was taken off was God slowly revealing his wrath against the earth. And we went through seals one, two, three, four, five, and six. When we came to number seven, do you remember what happened? The seventh seal was, surprise, You've got seven trumpets of God's wrath coming now. So just about the moment that they think, oh, we're about done with God's wrath, the seventh seal is seven trumpets. And now we start seeing the wrath of God being, being uh, at, a, at a higher level as well. And then guess what we find out now? Turn to, turn to chapter 15, verse 1. We read this. Then I saw another sign in heaven... Great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. You say, wait a minute. I mean, wasn't there only one more trumpet, right? And then it was going to be over? What's this about seven plagues? Look at verse 2. Uh, but yeah, so, the, so what's going on with this seventh trumpet is the idea. Look at verse 2. You read this. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. Let me just pause there for a moment. Where have we seen that before? Is it on heaven or on earth? It's in heaven, right? And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Interesting to me, where are the people who died from not having the mark of the beast placed on them? They're in heaven. (laughs) The beast killed them. That's not the end of their life. The beast seems like he's winning, right? Because he he held the power of death in his hands. And you you don't put the mark of the beast on, you die. But guess what? That's not the end of their life. Where are they? They're in heaven. And I think that's important for us to understand th- that that even if a person dies to the enemies of God, that's not the end. In fact, they're not just up in heaven. What are they doing? They're singing. Look at look at verse uh, verse three. They sing the song of Moses. What's the song of Moses? The song of Moses is in Exodus fifteen, and as they were cross, they crossed the Red Sea. I mean imagine that moment when you think everything's you think we're dead. The Egyptians have surrounded us on all three sides. We have the Red Sea on the other side and and you have that mo- that deep moment of despair like we're done. And God says, "No, watch, I was just making it dramatic. I got this dramatic salvation story ready for you." And boom, he splits the water. And they march across on dry land. Then come the enemies of God, and they, come, they, they make the worst military blunder of all time, and they follow the Israelites through the Red Sea. I don't know about you, but I think I would have said, sorry, boss, I'm not going there. But they, they did, and then the sea swallows them up and wipes them out. What a beautiful, dramatic ending. The, these people who have been at that point, they've been at that point where it's that low of the lower, where they're being killed for their faith, they will stand up there someday, and when God is doing what He does, and He's having this dramatic moment of rescue, and what are they doing? They'll say, "Oh yeah, this is just like this is just like in the days of Moses," and they start singing the song of Moses, right? And they, not only that, there's a new song that's not mentioned anywhere else. It says they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So th- th- it'll break them out into a new song saying, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. That's what I look forward to. Amen. I mean, all the nations of the earth can, can spit on the name of, of God right now, but there's gonna come a day when all the tables will be turned The world will be purged of its evil and every nation is going to worship God. Isn't that awesome? And we've got this glimpse of the end. And we've got this glimpse. We understand it. In the end, those who have victory over the beast, though they may have been physically killed by the beast, they will see their blood avenged and they will see God in all of his glory. What a beautiful thing. But in order for that to happen, look at at verse 5. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever." The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. They were completed. What's going on here? What we're finding is six seals were bad but the seventh seal multiplied it by seven. The seven trumpets, the first six were bad. But you know what the seventh trumpet is? That there's now going to be seven Bowls of God's wrath. And notice, too, that it says that they will be complete. In other words, this is it. This is the end. The wrath of God will be complete. It'll be over. It will be done. And think about that. What's he doing? Seven, seven, seven. Compare that to a moment to the mark of the beast. Remember the mark of the beast? What was the mark of the beast? Six, six, six. What were we told in Revelation? The the mark of the beast, the the number of a man is what? Six. That number represents man. We were made on the sixth day. We're supposed to do all our work in six days, etc. Six, six, six. Now, the idea in in Hebrew writing, the idea of of saying something, or in Greek as well, actually, uh, if you say something a second time, then that's emphasis, right? So if you say something, like you say God is holy, you're saying he's holy. That's true. If you say holy, holy, now you're emphasizing it. Jesus used that a lot with the word verily. He's saying verily, verily, I say unto you. It's like everything I say is true, but I'm emphasizing that this is true. Right. When you have something written in triplicate, like we see, or like we sang today, holy, holy, holy. What does that mean? That means the holiest. It's the superlative, right? It's the, it, you're saying, it's the holiest. And so the mark of the beast, by having the number of man, the number of man, and the number of man, that's 666, six, six, it's the superlative of man. That is, we don't need God. Look what we can do. We're man. We can create our own world. We can create our own trinity. We can create our own religion. We can create our we, look what man can do, and the world in general is going to say, "Let's follow that and let's do that because that's what we want." By the way, this happened already at the Tower of Babel, right? right. Forget what God told us to do. We look what we can accomplish, and and we and that's the, the idea behind six six six. Right? What does God respond with? No, it's not six six six. It's not man man man. Seven, seven, it's me. It's God God God. Seven, seven Seven. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And we see that no matter what man att- attempts to do, no matter how man attempts to usurp the level of God, it just can't be done. And, and God has to be in his place where he belongs at the top. Wow, Pastor David, this is heavy stuff today, right? Yeah. That's heavy. I get it. How do you apply this? How do, how do you, th- how, do you what, how shall we then live? Right, in the words of Francis Schaeffer. What do we do with this? I would say it's pretty simple if we follow the, the three key words of patience, purge, and purify. Uh, think of it this way. Number one, be patient in your persecution while the earth is ripening. Be patient in your persecution while the earth is ripening. What do I mean by that? The world isn't ready yet. It's not ready for all of the wrath that God is about to pour out and that we're going to read about in the following chapters in Revelation. The world isn't there yet. It might seem like it to us and it's on its way but it's not there yet. They're not as evil as they're going to get. Can you believe that? Yeah. I'd like, like you to compare that to Israel under the slavery of Egypt. Remember in the Old Testament the people of God were, were Israel. Israel was placed under slavery of Egypt. And do you remember when God predicted, actually even before they, before they became slaves, God predicted that they would become slaves. He predicted in Genesis 15. He said that it was going to happen. He said that they're going to go to Egypt and they're going to be oppressed. And, uh, and In fact, in, in verse 14 we read this. It says, and also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. What's he saying there? The nation that they serve, Egypt, I'm going to judge them. I'm going to judge Egypt for the way they treat the Israelites. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. But I'm also going to have them leave, and they're going to leave rich. Which, by the way, did that happen? Yes, It did happen. You go into the book of, of Exodus, you find that the Egyptians did persecute them. You also find that when they left, that, that, that Pharaoh, because he was so sick of all of, all of the plagues, that he said, said, all the slaves are welcome to take All of the things that they want to from their owners and take them with them. So they grabbed all of their gold, all of their silver, all their precious metals, and they they left rich. Right? And so that did happen. What I find interesting comes two verses later. It says, But in the fourth generation they shall return here, talking about the promised land. Why? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Let that sink in for a moment. The Israelites were suffering, right? They're suffering persecution from the Egyptians. And God's saying, the, the Egyptians deserve to be punished and you deserve to be rewarded. However, you're going to have to wait four generations of people. Why? Because when you leave Egypt, you're going to come back to the promised land. There's all going to be people there. The Amorites are going to come in and they're, you know, it's great land, it's fertile land. They're going to take it. They're going to build their homes there and they are not yet evil enough. They're not yet sinful. That's what iniquity means. They're not yet sinful enough to deserve to be displaced from their homes and wiped out. Wow. Think about that. God allowed generations. Talk about patience. Some people were born under that slavery and died under that slavery. Why? Because God had mercy on the Amorites. Because some of them, as we find out later, came to accept the truth of who God was. Wow. Think about that. God was allowing that to happen. And um, he was allowing that for a good purpose when you actually stop and think about it. You know, sometimes God's people will have to endure prolonged persecution simply because God is patiently giving the world opportunities to repent. I think if we, if we could vote on the rapture, the vote on the timing of the rapture, how many of you would vote for today? Right? I don't think we'd have too many people that would be complaining about entering into the presence of the Lord today from this congregation. I don't think we'd have that problem. And, uh, but why hasn't it happened yet? It's because of the compassion and love that God has for some of the, the Amorites of this world. People who as a nation's, shake their fist at God. God knows that there are some that are still there that need to repent, that will, and he's patient. I'll tell you what, that changes the way I think about things. Am I willing to endure some persecution if I know that that means that some of those persecutors are going to be my friends for eternity? Yes, I am. And what if it comes to the point that I die? That's okay too. Because even if they kill me, I'm going to be at the glassy sea singing the song of Moses and singing the song of the Lamb while we watch God do what he does best and bring justice and mercy into perfect alliance in this world. Isn't that awesome? Yes. Yes. you think about that? So is it worth being patient? Yeah, I would say it, it is. So be patient in your persecution. If you are going to take a stand for Jesus Christ, you're going to get persecuted more and more in this world. And it's going to get a lot worse than it is. And I don't say that to, to get us down. I get that. I say that because, because, first of all, it's because it's true. But I say it also because it gives us opportunities to show the world what, what it's like to be like Jesus Christ. You know, when everything's going great and no one's persecuting us, it's hard to, to show them what it's like to be Christ. But when they start persecuting you, you can have a testimony for Christ, Right? And so, in one sense, we could say, bring it on, because we're willing to be patient, because our God is patient, and he loves even those who are persecuting us. Uh, The second thing, uh, the second application I would say is to know that God will purge the evil from this world. So the other thing I think that brings us comfort is the realization that for those who don't repent, those who do persecute, they are not getting away with anything. God is still in control. He is going to purge the evil from this world. And even one step further, he's going to purify the earth. And by the way, when he, when he purifies the earth, that opens the door to reverse the effects of the curse. You can reverse the effects of the curse. What did sin do to this world? We just, uh, and servant leaders last Sunday, we talked about this. We talked about all, the, all the problems that sin brought into the world. And, and we look through all, this, death is one of them, right? Uh, and we, we find that that sin is what destroys everything in this world. And yet, when the earth is purified, that opens the door to reverse the effects of the curse. Amen. I want to give you another glimpse of the end, and, and, and we'll get there. But look at chapter 21, verse, verses 1 through 4. And I say this, we'll just close with this, just to kind of get a little glimpse of this. We won't study it out yet, because we'll study it out when we get there. But this is a necessary thing that has to happen in order to get to Revelation 21 where we read, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Amen. What's God in the business of doing? He's purging and purifying the world of evil so that we can get back to this. This is what we had in the Garden of Eden. And because mankind thought he could usurp the role of God, that ruined everything. But at this time, we will have seen what happens. We will have seen the consequences of sin. We will get the big picture and we will, we will fall on our knees and what are we going to do? We're going to worship. We're going to sing the song of Moses. We're going to sing the song of the Lamb. And we're going to sing together and say, wow, God is God. I'm not. And the moment that we do that, that changes everything. And we'll be able to enjoy, we'll, we'll enjoy work Believe it or not. We'll enjoy every job that God gives to We'll enjoy everything. Why? Because sin won't be there. There'll be no sin, no sin, no sorrow, no pain, no death. Right? Just yesterday, I had to stand here as, as, as those who, were, who were, were in this room as we said goodbye to one of our members of, of, of this church, Ruth Ann Tyler. <laughs> Dramatic effect. <laughs> but, I sure playing that one, didn't I? <laughs> but you know, here's the thing. We, we, we said goodbye. It's really a see you later. Oh, yeah, I'll miss seeing her right back there. I'll miss how every, every Sunday she would come up to me and say, Pastor, if you don't have a message ready, I, I've got one ready. I'll preach for you. <laughs> she had a great, I'll miss her sense of humor, right? But I'll see her again. And that's why I was able to offer some, some hope to the families that were there because all of these effects of the curse that cause so much pain and sorrow in our lives and you, you, you know that some of you are going, are going through that right now as you, you recently lost loved ones or some of you have loved ones who, who couldn't be nearing the, their, their, the finality of their time on earth and it's painful but there's hope. Jesus is in the process of purifying the earth so that he can undo the, the effects of the curse and that we can one day stand together in a sinless environment where God is in his rightful place and we worship him together and we get along and there's no pain sorrow or death I look forward to that day <coughs> we bow our heads for just a moment I just want to ask you if there's anyone in here who would say Pastor Dave I'm not sure that I'm ready for that day I am not certain that I've accepted Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. If that's, if that's you today, would you just simply raise your hand? No one's really looking around. It's just, just between you and God and me. Because so I would invite you to come and talk to me right after the service. I would love to sit down with you and share from God's word how you could know for sure that you have eternal life. You could know for sure that you'll be of the 777, not of the 666. I would also ask if there's anyone here today who would say, you know what, Pastor David, I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. I'm already a son of God. I know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. But I've struggled with some of that bitterness. I've struggled with seeing the world get away with things. And, and I'm willing to make that commitment today to be patient in the suffering that God allows me to go through, knowing that he has a plan and his plan is ultimately for good. Would you just be willing to raise your hand and say, Pastor, that's my decision today. Awesome, I see hands up. Just willing to suffer the biblical way. Humbly, not with bitterness. Just say, Lord, I'll be, I'll be patient and I will love my enemies as much as you love them. Awesome, if you do that, you'll have an impact in this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for your word. I thank you even for the parts that sometimes scare us. But, Lord, it's such a comforting thought to realize that while all of that is going on, all of, the, of, of, of your wrath is being poured out on mankind, we'll be singing together with the martyrs, singing praises to your name. Lord, I pray that we would do that right now, that we would be those who would sing praises to your name, even in persecution understanding the end from the beginning. And I pray this in Christ's name.